for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're in a series entitled Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And the aim of this series is to, uh, to cultivate uh, living a wholehearted allegiance through a whole life obedience. And so we looked at um, the, the four foundational pillars and then uh, we talked about uh, five confessions back in the fall. And, and since that time we've begun to work through the book of Deuteronomy. And, and much of the book of Deuteronomy, especially chapters 12 through 26, are legal code. In other words, uh, Moses is preaching sermons telling the people how they are to live when they get in the city, or excuse me, in the promised land across the Jordan River. And so he's, he's just giving them practical to-dos and to-don'ts. And sometimes those things that we don't like to hear, uh, but we desperately look for when we need an answer. And what Moses is doing is he's exhorting the people to live in such a way that their lifestyles demonstrate the glory of God in the land in which they live. So that the other nations will see the glory of God and will trust and hope. In him, And so what we're doing in this series, as we walk through this section of Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 26, we're looking at some of those select laws that he sets forth, or the sermons that he preaches, and we're kind of approaching them topically, and we're asking ourselves, do they still apply to Christians today? Do they still apply to us? And I, I think wholeheartedly, you probably know that my answer to that is yes, they do. But we want to look at them through the lens of the gospel so that we understand how we faithfully apply them and so we don't reduce Deuteronomy just to a set of do's and don'ts and, and, and find ourselves embroiled in legalism of which never pleases God. Okay? So that's where we're at and that's what we're doing. And today we're touching on the broader subject of justice. Justice, I know, man. When I said that in the first service, people started applauding and hooping and hollering and jumping up and down going, yay, I love to talk about justice. And I can sense it in you too. You're wanting to jump up and down. I can feel that. Well, imagine if you were alone and there were 200 people staring at you. Now, you know what I feel like. But I hope and pray that today will help you. I hope and pray it will encourage you, inform you, inspire you, but most of all, that it will equip you as a Christian to live faithful to the teachings of Christ in the Scriptures and demonstrate His glory in the world today. That's my aim. I'm going to begin in Deuteronomy 16, in verse 18, 19, and 20. And I'm going to share with you four principles today that guide Christians in seeking justice in the world. And I'm going to forewarn you about the first three. They're a little technical. But hey, it is justice after all, right? But I need you to understand those as a foundation so that when we get to the fourth, we'll have a greater understanding. Let me read for us Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18. 
You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Can I just provide for you the big picture, the big idea, the main aim of where we're headed today? And it's simply this, that Christians seek justice to point people to Jesus as the just one and the justifier of all who trust in him. That's the big picture of where we're headed. And I want to point you in that direction through four principles that guide us. Principle number one comes immediately from verse 18, and it's simply this. Seeking justice demonstrates the glory and the character of God in the world. This first principle that guides us says that the whole purpose of justice in the world is to demonstrate the glory and the character of God. Moses provides an introduction and also an overview for justice in three short verses. But he packs them so densely in these three short verses that we see an overview of the whole of justice. You see, God commands justice so his people will live to demonstrate his character for all people to experience his glory and love. Yes, God wanted orderly society in the promised land, but it wasn't just because God likes orderliness. There was a greater purpose for the justice in the land, and there's a greater purpose for justice in our world today. You see, justice enables all people to see God's glory and to experience His love. In a very practical way, when we see justice carried out, we see the very glory and character of God displayed in our world. And this passage reveals key characteristics of justice that help us display God's glory and Love. First of all, we see that justice begins with the appointment of local judges and local officers. That's what it says. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes. According to your tribes. So it was local judges and, uh, that would judge and those appointed officers that would ensure the judgments would be carried out. You see, justice demanded that there be a shared responsibility among the people. This was a further development of what Moses had already begun at the uh, uh, council of his father-in-law when he said, Moses, you can't do all of this. You need to spread it out. And so Moses directed them to appoint judges. Well, now he's coming back and he's saying, let's further develop this so that justice can be carried out on a more local level with people and individuals, and that responsibility for justice can be shared among the people. The second key characteristic that we see of this principle is that justice was administered at a local level, and when done so, it's always best because it depends upon the relationships between people. So often, justice just becomes a cold process in our world today, but that's not the way God intended justice in the Bible. That justice being a display of his glory and of his character, what do we know about God? He comes to have relationship with us, right? 
I mean, Genesis 1 and 2, he created us for a purpose, and that purpose was to have relationships. So anything that demonstrates his glory and character in the world is going to hinge on relationships. And so not only did justice demand shared responsibility among the people, but justice from judgment to sentencing was to be carried out locally among the people because it depended upon those relationships. You see, when situations would arise that couldn't be determined within the local judges, they could appeal to higher judges. But that's not where the principal amount of justice was to be carried out. We also see not only that justice was administered at a a local level, and that was best, but also that righteousness provided the rule of justice. That God's word would provide the guide by which judges would judge and the standard by which the people were responsible to hold the judges accountable. And so justice provided the means by which righteousness would be displayed in the world, both through the ruling of the judges and the carrying out of those rulings by the officials of the judges' court. And so we see these key characteristics. And and then he goes on in in verse 19 to provide what I call some guardrails of justice. Hey, there's some ways you need to be careful to make sure that justice is in fact just. It's always good for justice to be just, right? Yes. If you don't know the answer to that, I'll give you a hint. They were to not do three things. First of all, they were not to pervert justice. Because when you pervert something, you make it what it was never intended to be. That's what perversion means. You are not to pervert justice. You are not to make it something that it's not supposed to be. What was it supposed to be? It was supposed to be a demonstration of the glory and the character of God in the world. Anything less makes justice something it was never intended to be. And Moses says you are not to pervert justice. The second negative that he shows is that you're not to show partiality, neither by the judges nor by the officers. You see, partiality demonstrates, you petition, if you will, uh, uh, you you separate, you divide in this. And, And when you show partiality, you demonstrate a divided mind. You demonstrate a divided loyalty, not only within you, but among people. And you demonstrate a divided purpose. You do not want a divided purpose in justice. Why? Because that's injustice. And so you're not to show partiality. When these occur, it favors the benefit of one person over another for all the wrong reasons and with all the wrong motivations. Ultimately, partiality showed that people would favor a worldly status over obedience to God. And that's what they didn't want. Finally, the third guardrail is that judges and officers were not to accept bribes. Because bribes blinded the wise and subverted the cause of righteousness. In other words, bribes cause you to leave the path of purposefulness that was intended. They deceived people. So often bribes would deceive people to believe that their role in serving justice was more and better for their benefit than for the benefit of the people and the society with which they served. And God says you are not to accept, bribes are not to be part of your justice. 
So Moses concludes with the strongest of statement that simply says this in verse 20. Look with me, if you will, in verse 20. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Listen, friends, if this were in a sermon, which it is, basically Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses preached to the children of Israel. Verse 20 of chapter 16 would be Moses like yelling it, bringing it, you know, like like he has built up to this moment and at this moment he's waving his arms like this and he is saying to the people, justice and justice only will you follow. You see, the repetition is for compounding interest and emphasis to the people. Only justice, justice, justice. Beat it into their heads until they get it. That justice and justice only will you follow. He brings the strongest emphasis in his writing to this. You see, justice is more than just right decisions. That's what we reduce it to so many times, right? Because justice is doled out through decisions. But it's more than just right decisions because the Bible tells us that justice builds a nation by God's design. It is through justice that God establishes a nation. And injustice tears that same nation down because it hurts people. Proverbs 29.4 says, By justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Why? Because when you exact a gift, it's selfish serving. You're using the nation for yourself instead of serving the nation with yourself. But he goes on in Proverbs 14.34 to also tell us this point of wisdom. That righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You see, the purpose of justice is to display the glory and the character, the nature of God in the world. And God's nature is His righteousness. And so God commands justice that His righteousness might be displayed among all people In the world. And what God says to the Israelites in that day through Moses still holds true for us today. Christians seek justice. And when we do, we trust that God's blessing for the city is greater than man's institutions in the city. When Christians seek justice, we trust that God's will and righteousness, His justice and blessing for the city is greater than man's institutions in the city. Not saying man's institutions of government are not important. Didn't say that. Just saying they're not more important than God's righteousness. They're not more important than God's blessing. Government serves the purposes of God, not God the purposes of government. And that's important for us to understand in knowing the purpose of justice. The second principle I want to share with you today is this, that seeking justice serves to uphold good and to restrain evil in the world. That when we seek justice, we seek to uphold good, but also to restrain evil in the world. This principle comes through two passages in the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy and I'm not going to read all of them but I'm going to give you an introduction to them for the sake of time today. Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 8 through 13 provides direction for a situation where a difficult case 
arises. And this is dealt with actually a couple of times. But basically the local judge is confronted or presented with a case that becomes too difficult for them to uh, uh, adjudicate. And so they are told that they should go to higher judges and priests for their rulings. And when those higher judges and priests, those officials rule, that the local judge and uh, officials are to carry out that judgment. And then he goes on to say that they are bound by the decision even if they don't like it or agree with it. The law binds them to that decision. And in this way, if they do not carry out the decision at the local level made by the higher courts, if you will, they too stand as criminals against the very case that was being tried. And in these cases, it was significant crimes like murder and things that deserved death if they were found to be guilty of those things. And so the very judges that perverted justice, if they didn't carry it out at the local level, would equal the same or would be guilty and and sentenced to the same uh, sentence that those in the actual crime themselves would be guilty of. And so he goes on to say in verse 13 that in this way they were to purge evil from the city and that the people should hear and fear to not act presumptuously again. In other words, if the officials themselves who make the judgments and carry out the sentencings, if they're responsible and accountable for the way they handle it, then all of the people are, uh, hold that same responsibility. And that consequence would display for all people the importance of justice in the land. You see, seeking justice doesn't mean that injustice never happens. We, we know that, right? I mean, we don't have to look very far to see a plethora of injustice in our world today. But it does mean that you never ignore injustice. For justice is not only upholding good, which it is, and we'll see that displayed a number of times, but it's also a matter of restraining evil. Justice holds people accountable for their actions when they deny justice. And so seeking justice means fighting injustices. Reminds me of a conversation I had with a police officer one time. I was on a ride along and uh, as we pastors often do when we get nervous we start talking and talking and talking and we figure if we keep talking we'll talk it out and it'll be done. Point in case sometimes we just never get done talking. But as I was in this ride along, sitting in a police car for the first time, not because I had to be there, but because I chose to be there, that's a joke. I've never been arrested. I was talking to him about the role of police officers in the world. <laughs> I know. You know, we got all this fun stuff going on, radios going nuts. And what am I talking about? These large philosophical issues of police work in the world, right? But I do. I have a high regard for civil servants. And so as I spoke to him about that, we, we, our conversation went on for a number of hours. I remember one thing he said to me, and here's what he said. He said, we can't stop the evil or change the evildoers, but we can slow them down and we can push them back. Our job is to restrain evil as much as we can, and that is a good thing. Well, I tell you, in a day and time, 
when everyone who chooses to wear blue is under a microscopic judgmentalism of questioning their very motivations and having to justify why they would want to serve the city in that way. I think that's a good reminder for us. It's a good reminder that helps us illustrate this principle that simply says, I know every police officer's not a good police officer. And by good, I don't mean the best of their, uh, of their discipline, but I simply mean I know there are ills and evils in every profession in this world. Pastors alike. I know that doesn't surprise any of y'all. But my point to say is simply this, friends. They serve a role in justice that we should regard as ordained by God. They are the officers of the courts. And as such, they serve this principle to uphold good and to restrain evil. And while they are the officers duly sworn to uphold the law, None of us are exempt from being responsible for the law in God's eyes. And that's what he is saying to us. Proverbs 21.15 tells us, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. You see, the regular practice of justice in a world full of injustices becomes a joy For those who want to live, not in contrast to the law, but in obedience to it. But for those who want to skirt the law, make the law their own, or just oppose or deny the law, the practice of justice is actually a demonstration of terror against them. Now, if you've ever met some criminals, you'll understand that many of them aren't necessarily afraid of it, but I'm pretty sure it's just because too often... They're too dumb to think about it. On that same night, we actually watched a guy get booked. And while in the booking room, the most inhospitable room you've ever seen in your life, stone and steel, that's really all that makes it up. He's hitting on another criminal that's been arrested, this woman who's been brought in for drug charges. And she said, I'm going to be here for six months, but I'll talk to you when I get out. Warm and fuzzy right there, friends. Justice bringing people together right there in the booking room, right? No, I was like, oh my goodness. But yes, there are people like this in the world, right? Maybe some of y'all met in the booking room. I don't know. I guess God could work that out too. Seeking justice, it upholds good. And it pushes back evil. It creates a place where people can thrive and where evildoers should fear just consequences. There are several laws that really demonstrate this principle in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19 verses 4 through 13. God establishes three cities that are to be established in the new land. And these cities are places that both uphold good for people and restrain evil from people. They're cities of refuge. 
And one of the illustrations that's given says, you know, if, if two men go out to work in the woods and they're chopping down trees and accidentally the head of the axe flies off of the handle and hits the other one, completely accidental, but it kills that one. And so it's an accidental killing. A city of refuge is a place where the one who actually committed the act could run and be safe in that city against the, the potential vengeance or anger displayed of their family or friends who might want to seek anger. And so it upholds good because this person who's already fraught with the, the, the mourning of having killed a friend accidentally can run to a place where he and his family can provide for themselves in a city of refuge and not have to fear whether or not another person's going to come in and, and try to exact harm against them during the night or when they're not on their guard. That's upholding good and restraining evil. And while these people may mean no personal intent towards the individual, they may be so overtaken by anger that vengeance becomes their only answer and they may do it just out of sheer rage. And so not having that person around them becomes really an expression of grace to them that it doesn't conjure up negative emotions and the anger that could cause them to lash out in such a way. That's upholding good, but restraining evil in a very practical way. Another way that it's demonstrated in Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21, it establishes that a single witness shall not suffice, but a viable testimony must be established by two or three witnesses. You know what you call a single witness? That's called an opinion. Doesn't make it wrong. But the law just simply says you can't establish a witness against a person on a single testimony. It must be established on the testimony of two or of three. And do you know why? People get mad at people all the time, right? And what they were trying to do is to say, do not trump up false charges and accuse people of things just because you're mad at them. And you go, oh, who would ever do that? Really? And if they were found out to be false charges, then in fact, they would be held guilty for trumping up those false charges. So you're upholding good. If in fact it is true, let more witnesses come and restraining the evil that lies so deeply within our own hearts. The law cannot always be perfectly administered, friends, because we do not have a perfect understanding of all situations. But just because deciding a case is hard and at times seemingly unknown does not mean that you stop administering the law, either through the judges that pass the sentence or the officials that carry out the sentence. You see, when there is no justice, people lose hope. If you don't believe me, travel to a country that's been riddled by communism. Where there is no balancing of scales. You see a scale, it's just one-sided. And it isn't your side, unless you're in control. You look at people who've been stripped. You look at people who've had the promise or the hope that maybe justice will come through for me, stripped from them. And what you find is, there is no hope. And while a system may not be perfect, if it's laboring for justice, there is at least some hope inherent within it. Seeking justice brings hope to people by upholding what is good and by restraining evil. That's the second principle that we see. The third principle that we see is this. 
Seeking justice always prioritizes protection and help for people. It always prioritizes protection and help for people. We're going to look at two passages in Deuteronomy 24 and Deuteronomy 25 to see this principle come to fruition. And there's three specific areas that we see that you prioritize the protection of people, but you also provide help for them. There's a societal concern that the law and justice provides for. There is the judicial administration concern. In other words, that the law gets uh, uh, correctly uh, adjudicated in every sense. And then there is the economic concern. Let's look at these for just a moment. First of all, justice holds a societal concern to protect and help the poor and those who are vulnerable. Deuteronomy 24 uh, uh, identifies several groups of people that deserve special attention in regards to this principle. And the first one that it identifies are the poor and the needy. It says, if you hire someone And they work for you. Do not withhold their wages for an inordinate amount of time lest they go home and have no way to provide for themselves and to feed their family. That's not just. If they work for you, pay them. You pay your dues. Pay your debts. Why? Because in so doing, you are practicing just practices that help those who find themselves in need and in situations. We see this throughout. We see this uh, when it talks about the agricultural practices throughout the Old Testament. Very often the the prophets would decry because the people were collecting all of the wheat and bundling it all up and leaving none in the fields. And so in the evenings when the poor would come out to try and find just a morsel, just a, a, a simple grain of wheat from which they could maybe chew on through the night to try and curb their pangs of hunger, they couldn't because people had lived unjustly. They collected everything and taken it in because they were being selfish. He says, in other words, bundle it up. But when some falls out of the bundle, leave it. Leave it. The poor will come behind you and they will collect this. And that's their only way to eat and to feed their families. Remember them. Remember them. And do not act unjustly against them. He identifies another group. And the second group is the sojourner. It's the person who's just passing through the land who maybe is going to be there for a time or maybe will only be there for the day. But those those wheat uh, uh, heads that are left can also serve them as well. And here's what I love about the, the law's acuteness to protecting and giving priority to people that are poor and needy or find themselves in vulnerable situations is that you can stand for a principle and still love people. Let me give you a practical application of that. I'm not going to get political on you here, but I will in a minute. You've been forewarned. You can believe that we should secure our borders as a nation and guard them against gross influx of immigrants. But as we have opportunity to bless those who find themselves here sojourning, immigrants from other lands... We should not refuse them basic life necessities to help them while they are here. So argue your theory and your philosophy all day long. I'll enter that argument because I'm always up for a good one. But as you have opportunity to love people, do not deny them love that expresses justice and righteousness 
and care and compassion. Friends, the Old Testament is complete in every way with this very tension that we hold. And so often we say you have to do one or the other when God, in fact, says you can do both. You can do both. And that's why we labor for justice in this world. Because we can love people and still labor for what is right without denying them justice. He goes on to talk about the fatherless and the orphan. These are people who are specifically in very vulnerable situations. In the Old Testament times, the fatherless and the orphan, they had no means of providing for their life. As a matter of fact, they had no hope of being provided for in all of their life because there was no father figure in their life. He said, wouldn't there be other family? Likely, if there was no father, there was no other family as well or family that would claim them in such a way to provide for them. And so these people were left to wander alone. And all the provisions of life that would be promised through a secure, stable family environment, they could not depend upon because they had no one to provide for them. Friends, there's a reason that the orphans, that the fatherless in our day and time are so critical for us as a church to be passionate about helping them. We do have government institutions to help many of these. But you do not want to see the success rate of many of those institutions. As a church, and defining church by a people, we should do all that we can do to encourage, to pursue fostering, adopting, and helping those who find themselves at the most vulnerable places in this world. Some people would argue, well, I don't think adoption's for me. I don't think fostering is for me. Let me just say, I, I can understand that. I, I've adopted twice, and I've, uh, I've considered being trained for foster care three different times. Never completing the training, though, for different reasons uh, uh, of situations in our life that arose. It's hard and it's getting harder and harder because the more injustices that exist in that system, the more legislation must be enacted. The more legislation just piles books up of what you have to know and what you have to be trained in. But every hour, every minute spent to be trained and to be qualified to help the fatherless. Not a second is wasted. So if you can't do it, who can you help to get it done? You can be part of it without being the main player in it. Let us be a people who look at those who find themselves in vulnerable situations and places of life. And let us be a voice that champions justice for them in every way to every extent. Let's help them. Also the widow. Again, you know the story of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi was a widow. Ruth was a widow. And Naomi said to Ruth and her sister-in-law, Go away, I have no way to provide for you. And Ruth said, I will not leave you. And this beautiful expression of God's covenantal love comes to us through the words of Ruth to her mother-in-law. And she says to her, 
Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. We see this beautiful expression of her saying, I will embrace your vulnerable place to help you and to be with you in the midst of that. Friends, I would argue that seeking justice prioritizes the protection and the help of these people. Fairness and equality that acts against helping a person in genuine need, God says, becomes sin before him. That's how God sees it. And remembering the plight of vulnerable people demands that you remember your plight before God saved you. That's how Moses puts this in Deuteronomy. He says, if you have trouble thinking about how hard it must be for people who find themselves in these situations in life, think about how difficult it was for you before God saved you out of Egypt. Think about how hard, think about how frustrating, think about how hopeless, think about how lonely, think about how loveless, think about how joyless, think about how peaceless life is without Christ and realize those who do not know him and those who suffer at the hands of injustice, that's the reality that they live in. And that's the reality that Christians labor to alleviate. You see, justice gets perverted When you demand from people more than they can bear in times of honest need of help for life necessities. And so I commend us in this way today. It is true that you may not be able to do something for everyone for nothing. But everyone can do something for someone for nothing. Right? One way we see this carried out in our world today is through pro bono kind of work. Professionals in the world are rewarded or at least recognized in their realm for offering pro bono work, work that they do for the cause of someone else and they may or may not charge for it or get compensated for it. Likely they don't. But friends, my point is not just, well, the law says I have to do this amount of pro bono work so I'll do that. But, but, but justice and seeking justice as Christians says to us, what can we do for other people that can offer us nothing? And that's the reason we seek justice. That's the reason we fight against the injustices like human trafficking. That's the reason we champion uh, uh, care for the fatherless and the orphans. That's the reason that we go not waiting for people to come to us, but we go to them to share a hope that we have in Christ Jesus that is not just ours to have, but it is ours to behold and to share with all who will receive. You see, seeking justice means that you consider the plight of people and you grant favor to help those in need. To help those in honest need. Now, I promised a while ago, and I don't like to go back on a promise. Let me just say this. Seeking justice never prioritizes preferences that claim need unjustly. been nice knowing some of you. I may not talk to you anymore after this. But understanding this principle that seeking justice prioritizes provision and help for those who in need is also to understand that the principle says we do not prioritize preferences that claim need. And I believe 
that this is a poignant situation that stands in front of us for the greater region, but specifically for the city of Springfield in the Soji Ordinance. That they're calling for a vote on whether to repeal it or not. And I believe that we should favor a yes vote that repeals this ordinance. I don't really have any interest in being political in this, but I do have an interest in being moral and ethical in the world to demonstrate justice. And if I were arguing against abortion, I would be arguing against it with equal fervor that I'll argue against this as well. You see, Christians serve as a conscience for the city. And I believe we see that even inherent when the judges must go to the higher court of appeals. They go not only to the judges, but they go to the priests as well. The church serves a vital role in the life of a nation that is honoring God. It doesn't mean that everyone has to agree or see things the same way. But what it does mean is that the churches enjoy a position, not a priority or entitlement, but rather of being the conscience of their city. And when I say church again, I'm not just talking about you waiting on the pastor to say words so that you can go, well, yeah, my church said you know this. I'm talking about every Christian being the church themselves. And so here's what I would say to us. As a conscience for our city, we oppose discrimination. We oppose discrimination both when it is against people unjustly and when it is unjustly for others. We're not going to raise laws that unjustly protect Christians because we want some kind of favor in the city that we're not due. But neither will we entertain nor support the same for unjustly discriminating for people in the same way we would not want to do that against people. You see, friends, loving people, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Then how do we love people? Because Jesus here in a moment, we'll see in Matthew 12, condemns the Pharisees, says, woe to you. You tithe your, every part of, your, of, of, of your, herb, your spice rack. And yet you deny the basic necessities of loving people in life. You should have done both. It's what you should have done. But loving people means trusting that God's word is true and his blessing is best when we exercise our citizenship. Christians above all should be model citizens. Why? Because God calls us to that, to obey the law of the land, to engage in this dialogue, and to be a voice of a conscience. But listen, we've come to the world today, and, and we've disengaged from politics because of the vanity of it, and because of the unrighteousness in it. And what I want to present to us is that we don't have the option to disengage, friends. We are the conscience for our cities. And that doesn't mean that we get to mandate it over them, but it does mean that in humility and courage, we must speak the truth of God's word in love for people. The problem is not that the city's running away without us. The problem is the church is just sitting by and letting it take place. Love people. Love God. That's what this is all about. You see, justice ensures also 
That judicial sentencing be administered fairly. Not only that social order be established, but that judicial sentencing be administered fairly. Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3 establishes that when a person is convicted of a crime, their sentence should be proportionate to their crime. And the way in which that sentence gets carried out should be done accordingly to that. So so a person should not be uh, uh, undeservedly degraded or dehumanized in the carrying out of their sentence. Some people just thought that started with America. Friends, that's not something founding fathers thought up. This is established in God's word. Why? Because God above all is concerned about people more than any others. There is no single individual, there is no culminating group of people that's more compassionate towards people, all people, than God himself. And there is nothing about any life that changes God's love and compassion for people. You see, just because a person is proven guilty does not mean that justice ceases for them in their sentencing. Because justice guards a city and it protects people by upholding good and restraining evil in the judicial practices of that city. And then thirdly, justice ensures that the economic commerce would be measured equally. Verses 13 through 16 and verses 17 and 18 of Deuteronomy 25, they pose two situations. And he simply says this, that your weights and your measures shouldn't be different for different people. In other words, God says if people are going to have a chance in this world to make a living, to provide for themselves, to provide for them, their families, there's got to be an equality in the way that those measures and those weights are doled out. And so people you like come in, one set of weights are set on the counter, and you weigh them out. Someone you don't like comes in, you put those away, and you put another one out. Because this one always favors the right side. And you know that. And God says, don't do that. That's not fair. That's not equal. That's not just. That's what God says. He identifies unequal weights and measures as a dishonest practice and ultimately as an abomination against him. Justice holds a distinct economic concern that weights and measures be equal for all People And you see, when multiple standards get used, people get abused. That's how that works out, friends. The poor and the marginalized always suffer while the rich and those in power bring gain. Good economics determines that all people will be able to work, to earn, and to trade. Evil in economics means that the selfish interest of a few gets served through the dishonest weights and measures doled out to the masses. We don't have to look very far for this one, do we? And the damage and the destruction it's caused? I say Enron, you say, oh yeah, oh yeah. And that's not just one of a kind, it's just a bigger one of its kind, right? We see these. See, these three principles guide Christians in seeking justice. Seeking justice in the city that the character and the nature of God might be displayed for others to see his righteousness and his holiness and to desire that. we, We seek justice in the city because we want to serve to uphold good and to restrain evil. We seek justice in the city because we want to always prioritize the protection and the help for those people who find their lives in vulnerable situations that we can offer help to. But listen, there's a fourth principle. 
And up until now, anyone could labor in seeking justice in what I've talked about. But what I'm going to propose to you in this fourth principle is simply this. It is uniquely Christian, but it is the foundation for which we do all the others that we do. Seeking justice means Christians labor to share Jesus, the righteous one, for the unrighteous. Do you know what justice is? The word justice in the Old Testament? It is the same Hebrew word as righteousness. So when he says justice and justice only, you will follow. He is say he's just getting the guitar for that humming noise. I know Terry, he's good. When he says justice and justice only, you will follow. What he is saying is exalt the righteousness of God. Why? Because he is sending one who will become the righteousness for the nations. Justice in the Old Testament is the same word as righteousness. And for the Christian, seeking justice means laboring for the justness of Jesus in which we have all fallen short. Micah 6, 8 tells us this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You see, doing justice in the world is good. It's morally and it's ethically good. But there is a greater glory in life than moral and ethical goodness. And it is righteousness. And it is a greater glory and a greater good that in and of ourselves we cannot attain. And neither can anyone else. But as Christians, we've received it because we know the one who is just and has become our justifier, who has become unrighteous that we might become righteousness. You see, the prophets declare God's love for justice for a reason because Jesus is bringing justice to the nations. And so when he says justice and justice only will you follow, he's not just saying do the right thing and do it every time he's saying Jesus and Jesus only will be the one that you follow he's proclaiming Christ not our righteousness but his not our justice but his when we trust the word of God we do not stand in our own strength but we stand in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ who became unrighteousness for us that we might receive his righteousness he is the just, capital J1, and he is the justifier. There will come a day that Jesus will be King Jesus. He will sit on the throne and he will rule, and he will rule according to the truth of God's word, and he will sit down judgments upon every person, and one factor will indicate not all the good that you did, not all the bad that you did not do, but what did you do with Jesus? was justice and justice only the way that you went. For he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And there will be no life without Jesus. And listen, friends, as Christians, we're living in a world surrounded by people who do not know the righteous one, who do not know the judge of all the nations, but we do. And we are here not only as a conscience in our city, but as a declarer of hope and of love and of joy that they do not know. They've been bribed to believe that the world offers a greater glory. They've been partialed out in their thinking and the loyalties of their heart by sin to believe that there's something better, but it's only to be found within themselves or within this world. They've been perverted. That's sin. They've been perverted to believe 
that they could not be loved in such a way that it would make that much of a difference. Why do Christians seek justice in the world? Because the justice one that we offer, the just one that we declare, the just one that we worship, the just one that we serve when we seek justice transcends this world. It's all eternity. It's Christ. It's Christ in you. It's Christ for you. It's Christ over you. It's Christ in all things. Seek justice. Seek the good of the city. Bless the city. But listen, a city cannot be blessed by unrighteousness. Righteousness exalts a nation. Unrighteousness undoes it. Let's pray. God, help us. For your word in Romans tells us, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. But it doesn't stop there. Praise God, there's a comma, not a period. And are justified freely by His grace. How can you do this, God? How can you justify freely those who have fallen short in sin? But to sin the just one. To die, to give Himself up as an atoning sacrifice. And to be the justifier of all who by faith trust in Him. Friends, Conceive of all the injustices in the world and understand this. The blood of Jesus that was shed covers them all. Every single incident. What I want you to walk away with today is this. That His blood covers every injustice for you. Yes, it's true for the world. What I'm seeking in justice this morning is personal. The blood of Jesus that atones for the sin of man was shed to bring forgiveness, innocence, freedom to you. Forgiveness. Do you know the forgiveness that only God can bring? Do you know the righteousness that only Christ can give? Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from yourself and you said, God, I've tried all I know to try and I've yet to accomplish it. But today, today, I want to cease my striving and rest in trusting you and you alone. If that's your prayer today, friends, I'm going to ask you to do something very simple. Tell God, in the stillness of your seat, in the stillness of this moment, tell God that. He knows. He knows. Confess it that you might come to know it. That you might receive the atoning work of Jesus and become a Christian. Not everything you've conjured up in your mind about Christians that you can think of that you didn't like, but everything that is glorious about the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness that He wants to put on you. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
just say yes to Him. Now would you look at me for just a moment? If that's your decision today, I want you to come up after the service. I'll be here. One of the other elders will be here. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to help you understand what it means to become a Christian and to follow Jesus. It's not about doing what we tell you to do. It's about loving Jesus because you've been loved by Him unimaginably. Now I want to share a testimony with you about someone who's received that kind of love. Her name is Arissa Spates. Her and her dad, Daniel, are going to come in just a moment. And Daniel's going to baptize his daughter. This is something we do with covenant members of our church because the father takes the responsibility of shepherding his home, of discipling his children to raise them in righteousness and godliness and the truth of God's Word. So in just a moment when they come, you're going to see a baptism. And it shows you as a testimony, it declares to us the saving work of Jesus and His righteousness. I'm going to invite you to stand and to worship, respond to the Lord. Daniel, you come, baptize your daughter.